So you can think of banks as kind of making money in two different ways. There's money that they take as a deposit that they lend out to someone else, and so it's margin money. And then the other type is fee-based. These two types of income streams generally go to different types of people. If you can deposit a lot of money, then the bank has more money to lend out, and so the margin-based, the spread-based income is more meaningful for them. If you don't have a lot of money on deposit, then they don't have the opportunity to make money on the spread, and so they make money on the fees. And it's interesting how so many processes in the financial system take so long. Like, does a check really need a few days to clear? The other big example is payroll. Why does it run every two weeks? I can't think of a single other thing that's important for us that runs in a two-week batch. And what I realized was that if you give someone access to the money that they've already earned when they need it, their life is much simpler. They're paying all their bills on time, no more late fees on bills, no more overdraft fees, no more payday loans. Welcome to Mindful Businesses presented by Sarani and I'm your host, Vedya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic and environmental practices. Today, we have with us Ram Palaniappan, CEO and founder of Earnin. Your money when you want it. He joins us from Palo Alto, California. Welcome, Ram. Thank you, Vidya. Good to be here. As we look at American families, their spending habits and financial security, we know about 7 out of 10 families live paycheck to paycheck. What does it mean to be secure financially? What are the factors that are taken into consideration? So there's many ways to think of financial security, but I think two big things would be one, the ability to survive and get past financial shocks. So for some people, it could be unexpected expenses. For some people, it could be not having work for some time. So that financial resiliency is one piece. And then the other piece is just the freedom to be able to live the life that you want. That's not being held back by your financial situation. So if you had to put metrics, it's like home ownership, food on the table, what are the metrics that you would consider? So it's very tough to get one set of metrics that works for everybody. Like one that you might think of is what is your income? Another one might be how much of wealth or how much of assets do you have? It's different for different people. How much of money that they can live by, what kind of income they need. And almost at like a very basic level, you need to be able to put food on the table, have a place to live. Like that's your first set, right? Of like most basic um, necessities. And then you um, can look at like what are the next set of things that you want is you may want to have an education. You may want to look at things that can help you move forward, things that help you enjoy your life more. And it's it's kind of like um, you've got Maslow's hierarchy of needs. From Indian culture, you have like Akta and Kama. You've got like different ways in which you have a hierarchy of needs, but you want to keep getting to the next level of needs. All these are probably tied with the savings rates that households have. What are the savings rates that an average American household has? Like what percent of their income is actually put away for this rainy day that you're talking about for education, for that trip that they want, or even a car breaking down? So I think what is important to look at is the distribution of savings rates. Because even if you have a high average savings rate, if it's being saved by a few people who are very rich, it doesn't actually help the population. So you want to look at what percentage of the population is actually able to save money. I think there's actually a large part of the population that is not able to save money. 
And just from the stat that you had, about two-thirds of the country is living paycheck to paycheck. When you're living paycheck to paycheck, by definition, what that means is you're waiting for payday. You're waiting for payday because you don't have enough money to cover your expenses between today and payday. So it's two-thirds of the country that doesn't have enough money. That's a huge number for America being one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Why are people not frugal? Why could it be the culture of spend, 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 or education like financial literacy? Why are people living such an insecure life? So yes, the country is one of the wealthiest countries. It's also one of the countries with the most inequality. It is not that people are not frugal. There is a wide distribution in incomes. We also have a system that actually makes money go, it's expensive to live paycheck to paycheck. Think of like you're paying overdraft fees. Um, you may have a bill that's due today, but if payday is next Friday, you're waiting till next Friday to pay it. And then you get a late fee on the bill. So the bill suddenly became more expensive. It is not that expensive for people who don't have the late fee. Maybe you have a toothache, but you can't go to the doctor. You can't go to the dentist till next Friday. And so you miss a few days of work. It actually hurts your income. And so you see many ways like this where it's actually expensive to live paycheck to paycheck. And the way the system works, like money's like a magnet. If you have a big magnet, you can pull all the smaller magnets. And so that leads to a lot of inequality. So let's talk about how banks make money. The banks take our deposits, they give you an interest, and they loan our money to people who need the money for their business or their homes. But in addition to that, they also charge fees. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So you can think of banks as kind of making money in two different ways. There's money that they take as a deposit that they lend out to someone else. And so it's margin money. The more you deposit, the more they can lend out, the more money they can make on it. So they make a spread. And then the other type is fee-based. And the typical fees are overdraft fees, late fees on credit cards. These two types of income streams generally go to different types of people. If you can deposit a lot of money, then the bank has more money to lend out. And so the margin-based, the spread-based income is more meaningful for them. If you don't have a lot of money on deposit, then they don't have the opportunity to make money on the spread. And so they make money on the fees. And if you look at the fees that they have, these are all fees designed for people who, are, who have small balances, right? Overdraft fees. They only come when your balance goes below zero. Late fees on credit cards, they only show up when you can't pay a credit card bill. So the fees are all designed for people who don't have large balances. And for the people who have large balances, they make their money on the spread when they lend the money out. What is the premise for this disparity? So I'd say the, the driver is that the margin business model is difficult to make work if there is not much money to on deposit to lend out because they have fixed types of costs. They have transaction-related costs, accepting every deposit may cost them some money, every withdrawal may cost them some money. So their cost structure is transaction-based, and there's not enough revenue based, which is based on the balance to make that account profitable. And so they're looking for different ways to make the account profitable. And the way to make these accounts profitable is transaction-based, particularly on the transactions where, which is disproportionately to this customer base. So they can continue to attract deposits from the richer people by giving them free checking. And they can keep the ones who come in but don't have enough money, keep those accounts profitable as well through fees that that group is more likely to incur. So you think our overall problems are exasperated because of the inequalities. The rich are getting richer and the poor, are, it's getting harder for them to make ends meet. And that is the framework in which all these other problems come about. That's true. It's so interesting to see how it's playing out, particularly now. You think of right now, there's a lot of inflation. 
And what inflation does is it makes all of the, um, it's kind of like a tax. It's a bigger tax on people who are poor, right? Inflation, because they have, most of their income is committed to expenses. So you don't have much choice. When you make all their expenses become seven or 10% higher, it's like a big tax on them. So inflation is a big tax, disproportionately impacting people who are living paycheck to paycheck or who are lower middle income. Mm -hmm. And how did the inflation come about? Because we pumped in a huge amount of money into the system. The assets are pretty much fixed. When you pump a lot of money into the system with a fixed amount of assets, all the assets become more expensive. Everything becomes more expensive. There's inflation. Just pumping in more money makes inflation. So it solved a short-term problem at that point in time during COVID where incomes were lost and people had money at that point to get by and now we're paying the price through inflation. It is important for most Americans to have a bank account. It's very hard to find banks in poorer neighborhoods. I remember we lived in the south side of Chicago in the 1990s and I want to say like 92 one of the banks opened a branch further south or um, 63rd Street and it was a celebration. We are living in America and we are celebrating a bank opening just like seven miles from downtown. It's, it seems so ridiculous, honestly. Yeah, this is a fairly well-known issue. There's a, If you look at the, start, the many studies have been done at a zip code level, the wealthier the zip code, the more bank branches there are. And there's also, government is aware of this and they have things like the Community Reinvestment Act which requires banks to be doing certain things to make sure that there is more reinvestment back into certain communities. But they're not there because of the risk that they don't want to take, right? And they have to get nudged by the incentives to start a branch there, right? Yes, they're not doing it willingly, so they're being pushed into it through regulation. I recently found out that if you don't have a perfect credit, it's hard to open a bank account in a conventional bank. Yeah, so they have this thing called check systems, where many banks check against that. If you had overdraft fees from a certain bank, haven't paid them back, then many banks will put you into this system called check systems. And some other banks will check against that. And so it's tough to get a bank uh, bank account because of that. And if you don't have great credit, it's also tough or more expensive to get things like a mortgage. And there's probably a long list of things and ways that we can point out how it is expensive to live paycheck to paycheck. We just added two more to that list. The inability to open bank accounts and uh, inability to get credit or getting expensive credit or expensive mortgages. So when you talk about the fees, right, the overdraft fees, I have $500 in my bank account. I put the check in in the morning, as rather I deposit the check in the morning. I go out in the evening at 7 p.m. hoping my bank has cleared my check, spend $600 thinking $500 plus you know, $200, which I had, is... I have about $700, so I can spend $600, but I'm hit with an overdraft fee. Why does that happen? So what your bank will probably tell you is that the check takes time to clear. And it's interesting how so many processes in the financial system take so long. Like, does the check really need a few days to clear? The other big example is payroll. Why does it run every two weeks? I can't think of a single other thing that's important for us that runs in a two-week batch. This is where you see technology come into play. Like, you wouldn't expect... Google to collect all of your search queries and give you the answer in two weeks. Like That's not how technology works. Generally, what technology does is it takes jobs that are running in batch and makes them continuous. And so we used to write letters. When we got the technology to send short messages instantly, we started sending texts. We're not going back from text to sending letters. We used to watch TV shows on the cable company schedule. 
But when we got the technology to send shows to each individual screen, when the customer wanted it, we moved to streaming TV. We're not going back to the cable company schedule. Eventually, we'll get to continuous pay. And at that point, you won't want to go back to your employer's pay cycle. Silverspun Goods is a woman-owned business and community supporter. They make products that are kind to your skin, kind to the environment, and kind to the community. They also support independent podcasters like Mindful Businesses. To learn more about this mindful business, visit silverspungoods.com. The other angle to this is that when I went to UK to open a bank account for my daughter, at the end of reading out all the terms and conditions, they explained to her that, hey, your deposits and your payments will be tallied at 1 a.m. as per UK banking regulations. But in the US, the banks get to choose and optimize in their favor. Exactly, yes. How is that okay? And how would I even know when and how my bank decides to clear my check, take my payment out? Technically, if I was a nefarious banker, I can wait, they can delay the deposit and make me run into overdraft. How is that allowed? And how would I even know what is the pattern? The bank understands how everything works. And they figure out how to optimize it. And then they would have had lawyers that would have put it into the terms and conditions that you may or may not have read. And so they're probably very well protected legally and would have considered all of this. Almost always, when there's something financial that can go one way or the other, it goes in favor of the banks. It doesn't go in favor of the individuals. And I think there have been studies that have shown this as well, that if you take transactions at a bank and you randomize it, you see which sequence it would come. It's highly unlikely to have come in the sequence in which it actually posts. And that if it was posting a randomized sequence, the fees would be much lower. In fact, um, Professor Anand Thayer, who you might know from Cranert, has done some studies on this to show that the posting of transactions is not randomized and that they are sequenced in a way that actually leads to more fees. And so this is the reality in which we live. And it goes back to my point. Why is it okay? Why are there no regulations? Of course, it's not something that you have control over, but you are doing some part of it. The regulation question is actually a very interesting question. So you could expect that regulations will try to step in and protect the consumer and stop these from happening. There's another way for it also to happen, to get better, is consumers don't like this. Like, which consumer has told you that they are so excited that they got the best overdraft fee? Like, you would have never heard anyone raving about, like, that they had the best overdraft experience. So these are things that the customers don't like. It's not a secret. Everybody knows that. If it's easy to develop alternatives to this, um, then the alternatives will come in and overdraft will go away. And so to some extent, when you have a lot of regulation, it becomes a barrier to entry. And then if the banks are able to be a part of that rulemaking, they can set it up so that they can survive. It's also very difficult for anyone else to come in. And then there's no competition. And so these things continue. It's interesting to look at, um, to look at how outdated money is today out here. So largely money is digital today. Like if you look at how much money you've spent, how much of it did you spend in cash? How much did you spend in digital version? Either through your card or going on to your uh, bank and paying something online or using your phone to pay. Most of your spend is digital today. Anything digital usually should move faster and should be cheaper to move. Digital money alone takes longer. If you're a merchant and I pay you, you get the money in three days. If I pay you with my card, but if I pay you with cash, it's instant. So money is this one rare thing where the physical version is faster than the digital version. Also, if I pay you as a merchant, you have to pay 2% to collect this digital money from me. Um, but if I gave you cash, you got it completely. 
So the digital version of money is also more expensive to move than the physical version. It's kind of backwards. And all wire transactions, they charge $25, like yeah. domestic and like 40 overseas. It's, and they sometimes charge to both parties. So if you send a $1,000, they're making $50 on it. So that's a big percent for the bank. Yeah. And so why is there not, why is there not an alternative to wires? Why is there not an alternative to merchants to taking cards? Because it's tough to get into these spaces. And banks have a very, because of regulations, they have a very privileged position. You're not allowed to accept deposits from customers unless you're a bank. You're not allowed to be a member of NACHA, the Federal Reserve, to be able to move money unless you're a bank. You can't be a member of Visa unless you're a bank. And so all of these things have been carved out for banks, that it's tough for there to be competition. What is Earning doing to help the situation, to smoothen the, what the employees earn and get in time? The way we see things work today, money is an obstacle to enjoying your life. And what we want to do is make money be an enabler of a better life. And we're building products for that. One that we have is known as earned wage access. And so it's a way for you to access your money as you earn it. So you don't have to wait for payday. How does that work? So you download our app, you set up your account, and then as you work, you'll see your earnings accrue in real time. And so it looks like an account into which your money is going. It's an earnings account. And whenever you want to access it, you transfer that money from the earnings account into your checking account, and then you spend from your checking account. And so instead of pay cycles being on a fixed schedule, the employee can choose when they want to pull their pay down. So it's like an on-demand pay. So I work for Walmart, say. Yep. How does it work? So you have a contract, Earning has a contract with Walmart to dock my hours, and you will deposit my earnings into my EWA account, earned wage account. It works for Walmart employees. We don't have an agreement with Walmart. We don't need an agreement with Walmart because we have methodologies and we have a technology platform that can basically show us how much you're earning in real time. Think of it like a time and attendance system that's built into the app. And through that, we can show you how much money you've earned that has not yet been paid out. And then we let you access that money. Could you talk a little bit about that technology? It's kind of intriguing. How would you know how many hours I put in? If, if it's self-reporting, yeah, so it's not self-reporting. You can think of it as any kind of, it's like a modern time attendance system. If you're familiar with the time attendance space, it's similar to what you would see from T-Sheets, from Intuit. There's other companies that do this. They usually do it to help the employer run payroll. We've used the same technology to basically run a parallel payroll system, which the employee controls. And when the employee controls this parallel payroll system, then they can set the cycle. They will choose a frequency or even periodic payments that actually meet their expenses. And so the big use case is you're trying to synchronize your income and your expenses. That's what they use this product for. We call it Cash Out. We also have another product that um, helps alert you when your bank account is running low. And so then you can either cut back your spending or you can move your wages into your bank account. Then we have another product that lets you put money aside. So we have this interesting situation where most bills are monthly, but most people are paid every other week. And so you have to remember to put money aside from one of your paychecks to cover the expense that's going to hit after your next paycheck. And we can automate that for you. And so we can automate set aside so that you don't run out of money for your bills. And so you can think of us like a stabilizer product. When you're short of money, we help you access your wages. When you just got paid, you have a surplus, we help you put it aside. And you are different than payday loans. Normally, I can go take the check to a neighborhood check discounting facility and get my money. How much do those 
establishments charge? A penny lender typically charges you $15 per hundred. There's also another difference. A penny lender is making a bet that you will actually work sufficiently to have enough money. What we're doing is we're saying that you as an employee, you've actually given your employer a loan because you worked today and you did not collect your pay. We know the employer needs to pay it back and we know when they're going to pay it back. So we're basically offsetting that. How much do you charge? We let the customer take the money without any fees. They, we let them tip us. And so they can choose what kind of tip they want to leave. It can be zero. And then if you want to get your money instantly within seconds, then we have a fee for the faster transfer. But the highest fee that we have is three ninety nine. So basically you're saying it's voluntary. Yeah. So if you wanted to, paying us is voluntary, you would take it out over ACH, which is the government rails that take about a day or two. And if you want it instantly, then we'll, we have to go over private network rails. And so we, it's a premium service that you can pay for in the Nexus. Are you able to make money? So it's a very interesting model, right? Like this is, it's dependent on what it needs to work is that there need to be enough good people who want to support a system like this. But you see this happen in many places. I think what you're seeing with technology is that trust is scaling, right? Like with eBay, you had that fear at the beginning, like what if someone says they're selling something, they don't ship it, but eBay generally works. So I think it's so interesting to see how the technology is scaling trust. Um, so these technology platforms can actually scale trust remarkably. How did you get funding? Were you in the banking space or were you basically techie? So definitely more techie, but I also have an understanding of the financial system and this consumer base. And so I think that helped me. I think it's also the startup world, I think, is a very interesting animal for a couple of reasons. One is VCs are looking for something that can make a huge change. And the ability to really like take money from being batched to being continuous, I think, can be a game changer. It's a very exciting place for people to put money in. It's also different from like trying to get buy-in to do this within a company because if you're trying to do this within a company environment, you need multiple people to agree for something to go through. Whereas when you're going to investors, you only need one investor to agree, even if 40 or 50 people say no. And so I think this is a story that was like happened with us, happened with a lot of startups that most people will say no to your idea, but you need one to say yes. Um, whereas if you're in a company setting, if one person says no, the idea might get killed. Any new idea when it starts is really fragile. There's probably more things wrong with it than right with it. And so I think the environment that we have out here in Silicon Valley is really conducive to letting ideas like this um, get a life. So did you get external funding or were you self-funded? No, we've got external funding. Trust is an important factor and technology is helping people overcome mistrust. Who was your first customer? So the way this started is interesting. Before the company started, one of my employees was running into overdraft fees and payday loans, and I spoke with her to try to find out what was happening. She needed money for the next day, couldn't wait till the following Friday, but she'd already worked for half of the week. And so from my point of view, we should just pay her for the day she already worked. She shouldn't go to a payday loan. I tried to make our payroll system pay her for the day she worked, and the payroll system couldn't do that. And so I just gave her money and said, like, here's the money that we should be paying you. So I did that for her once. I ended up doing that for a handful of employees for a few years. And then I moved over here to California. And this was before you started earning in your previous... This is before I started earning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I continued doing it for them. And then at some point, they used to just message me. It was all a messenger. And then at some point, I built a web page and asked them to just fill out that web form if they wanted money. And then people who I didn't know tried to use it. And I thought that was interesting. So I started doing it for them as well. And what I realized was that if you give someone access to the money that they've already earned when they need it, their life is much simpler. They're paying all their bills on time. No more late fees on bills no more overdraft fees, no more payday loans. That's when I realized that if I didn't try to make it into a product, I'd always feel bad about myself. And so that's how it started. You talked about life becoming simpler. Financial security offers a great impact 
on mental well-being. It is important, right? If you don't know where your next meal, how you pay your rent, where you, how you'll buy your grocery or buy something for your kids. We hear so many stories about how the app has made people's lives better. Would you like to share a couple? Yeah, sure. So common ones that we hear fairly often are things like people being able to celebrate their mother's birthday, their daughter's birthday, or an anniversary on the right day, not waiting till payday. Being able to go into work is an interesting one. Quite often people don't want to lock up $50 in their gas tank. So they fill gas $5 at a time. And then if something unexpected happens, they may not have enough money to go into work and they would miss work. But now with our app, they're able to download the money that they earned the previous day, buy gas and go into work, and so they don't miss work. Better attendance, uh, more hours at work means higher incomes. It sort of helps their life so much. Um, there's, there's so many stories like this. There's another one that I thought was really interesting. There was a lady who works at retail, and there's different types of jobs in retail. One of the jobs actually needs you to go from store location to store location. And that's a better paying job because you have a certain specialty and you go to the particular department of the store and you set it up properly. But because you have to travel, you have to pay for your own gas and then get expenses at the end of the week. But she could not afford to front the gas to take that promotion. And then she heard about our app, started using our app. And the next time she was off for that promotion, she took it. Those are wonderful stories. And you know, even when the penalties are levied unfairly, to go and fight with the bank... You need to take time off from work. So that puts you in another vicious cycle of, do you miss a half a day of work to go and waive this $35 charge? All these things makes the life so complicated. If you had the year offer of the bankers, of the policymakers, what is the one change that you'd request? Or even maybe the employers who would pay the day the wage is earned. The financial system is filled with so many imperfections. It's very tough to pick one. Pick two. <laughs> Maybe so I'll give you one that we didn't discuss, one that is, to me, really interesting. We spoke about how inflation is like a tax on people. There's another tax on people that's called interchange. And so when you swipe your card, the merchant pays interchange. Interchange is what goes to Visa, but it's kind of spread amongst a lot of people along the chain. And there's different interchange rates. So debit cards have lower interchange, credit cards have higher interchange. If someone spends more, if there's a card that has a lot of spend, the interchange is actually higher. Now, if you look at who has debit cards, it's largely people who are not able to get credit cards. The people who have credit cards will use credit cards because there's rewards attached to it. And so let's just say that a debit card, the interchange is about half a percent. On a credit card, it's about 2%. The store can't charge different people different amounts based on what card they use. So they see that they have some people coming in with a half a percent cost. They have some people coming in with a 2% cost. So they mark up everything 1.5%. And so the person who's not able to get a credit card, he lands up paying that 1.5% as well. It's actually more expensive than it needs to be for him. The credit card customer who is a more wealthy customer gets subsidized to some extent because their card costs 2%, but they're only paying 1.5%. And then they get rewards. And so you can see how like paper cut by paper cut, we're actually moving money a few cents at a time from the people who are lower income to the people who are higher income. What is the impact that earning has had on people? Like if you can put numbers... In dollar value? Yeah, sure. So our customers alone today are saving over a billion dollars a year in overdraft fees. We see paychecks go up for our customers. So about six months after someone uses our app, we see the paychecks go up about 8%. And one of the mechanics is what I told you, where attendance actually goes up. And because attendance goes up, the incomes go up. 
How many customers do you have now? So we have a few million customers on the platform. What are your future goals? I think we'll continue to build products that help with the goal that we've set out to do. We want to give people the freedom to live their lives with the money they have rather than have money be an obstacle to living their lives. And so that's what we're really focused on is building more products towards that. Wishing you all the best, Ram, on your venture. Thank you. You're listening to Mindful Businesses, hosted and produced by Vidya Ayer. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a voice note with your questions or comments to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcast. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. We recorded this podcast in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Theme music was composed by Tatum Gale. Our marketing assistant is Caitlin Mulligan. Our advisors are Jim Stone and Anupama Pashricha. This is Vidya Ayer with Mindful Businesses. 